Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if you, you know, we kind of wrapped up last week, I, I think, if I remember correctly, um, talking about just what it means to have an echo of the voice. Okay? And, and I think the consensus at least was, where's Holly? There's Holly. Two Hollies. I think the consensus, at least among this Holly, born, was that these echoes are unique to postmoderns. It was very, it was striking because, you know, the men on Tuesday nights are using this book. And I said to Pastor Nelson, I said, at the end of the year, I said, keep good track of what people say. He actually wrote down what people said. I would love to compare notes. Because, for, for example, I think the first question he asked is something about what does the church have to offer? And they hadn't read yet, of course. I mean, they, he just gave them the books that night. What does the church have, have to offer? And the very first answer was proof for the resurrection. Now, that is, that is uniquely modern. I mean, if you, if you read, this is why all of this stem from, stems from apologetics. If you read an apologetics textbook, most of them are from modernists because they begin with proof for the resurrection or proof for the divinity of Jesus or proof for this or that. That's completely rational. And in the group, if you knew the group, most of them are of the demographic that they're just moderns, modernists. So it'd be striking to compare notes. But I was intrigued by Holly saying, eventually, that is, uh, that is, that is not the way that I operate. That's just not what I think about. Um, so I think it's safe to say that these echoes of our voice are unique to postmoderns. And as I, as I concluded by saying, I think the church not only has a unique opportunity, but these echoes find their origin and their truest expression in the church. So, for instance, if you read about justice last week or if you read about justice this week, um, the church is all about justice. And not justice in the sense that you've done something wrong and now we need to punish it. Justice in the sense that when there are wrongs, those wrongs need to be righted. That's all the church is about. That's just a fancy way of talking about death and resurrection. Death is a wrong and resurrection is a right. Sin is a wrong and absolution is a right. The church makes a living off of justice. So if we, can, if we can find a way then uh, to bring postmoderns in who are looking for justice, maybe in all the wrong places, but bring them in and say, hey, we're all about justice, that might be a, a start. Yeah. I mentioned to this privately, but I think when Pastor Holly's comment last week, Claire had gone to an activities fair. Right. And the two things that got, like, she said, there was like 600 booths Right. Holly. The two things got her going was the singing booth, which yep. is normal. And she said, and I was just so excited by the international justice booth. <laughs> Yeah. But that was like the one thing. I'm going to test that out. And it's funny that you, like, the disconnect right. between the church and the church are all about this justice. Right. And yet they don't understand, they can't see the connection between the church. Right. I mean, my brother in law just started at Valpo. And I said to him, I said, what do you, I mean, you go to Valpo and, and that's a very good school, but I had no idea what he wanted to do. I said, what do you want to do when you're all done? He said, I think I want to join the Peace Corps. I never in a million years would have thought he'd want to join the Peace Corps. But, I mean, that's the way people think who are postmoderns. It's all about wrongs being made right. Okay? So are there questions, follow-up questions? I'd like to say one thing about the catechumenate, and I don't quite know when that'll, when that'll happen, but I will say it today. But is there, are there any questions about just the justice section in general? Yeah. Hmm. Ask away, yeah. Perfect. Question is, define modern and postmodern and how your defense of the faith, your apologetic, would differ given those two categories. You know, there are books written on what it means to be a modern, modernist, and there are books written on what it means to be a postmodern. I think you can sum, at least for this discussion, here's how you can sum it up in terms of the church. Modernists are driven by being rational. Okay, they're driven by being rational. Now, I'm a very rational guy, I think. But modernists are driven by being rational. If you can't give me the data and show me how it works out, I won't believe it. Okay? Postmoderns are driven, in a sense, by being irrational. It doesn't, the data doesn't matter. What matters is that I've been caught up in something greater than myself. 
which is why the second chapter on spirituality is so intriguing, because it, 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 it implies that there's something bigger out there. Okay, so that's the main, at least for our purposes, the main distinction is modernists are utterly rational, postmodernists, to a certain extent, are utterly irrational. It doesn't matter if you can provide the data, which means, here's how your apologetics would differ then. If I was teaching apologetics 60 years ago, I would begin with proof for the resurrection. Give me 19 biblical passages that show that this actually happened and provide all the archaeological data that he actually came out of the tomb, and that's how we'll win over pagans to Christianity. And that's what they expected me to teach, which is probably why I didn't get asked back to teach. Um, what For a postmodern, it's not about giving them data. It's about giving them a life to which they are drawn. So the whole class was taught about. Here's how, here's how the class went. You're a Christian. You have the name. Every week you get the Eucharist, which means Jesus resides in your flesh. You embody the person of Jesus. And people will be drawn to the church because they see you and how you live, and that's appealing to them. Do you see the difference? One is, it doesn't matter how you live. It's all about get the right facts and be able to describe it in a certain way. For a postmodern, it's about, man, that guy's got a lot of joy in his life. And when his wife died, it wasn't the end of the world because for some reason he thought there was something better for her. I want in on that. No, it's not emotional. It's sacramental. It's not emotional. Or, uh, I, think there's, I think there might be an in-between. You're right. If it's not, the way the world thinks is if it's not driven by mind, it's driven by the soul or the spirit. Um, this is driven primarily by the person of Christ. It's Christ doing the verbs through you. It's not emotional. It's not just that you get all sappy in church and say, I love this place. It's that you walk out and you live like a Christian. That's not emotional. That's, that's completely tangible and physical, concrete. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well said. And, and you shouldn't, I mean, my PhD is on the living word of Jesus. So I understand the, I understand the role of the scriptures. Um, I would, there there's a lot of stuff in there, and I'm trying to figure out which one to answer first. I think your point is a good one, that you need to be equipped with the scriptures. However, the scriptures are not the only way in which people come in contact with Jesus and the church or are drawn into the church. 
So, um, you know, this is not how apologetics works. And I often, say, I often say this with the high school kids. It's not just that you sit next to a guy in a bus and you say, do you believe in Jesus? And the guy says, <laughs> no. And you say, well, John 3.16 says this guy died for the sins of the world. Now, you've been equipped with a number of biblical passages which say Jesus was a real guy. And, in fact, he was God. And in fact, he died for the sins of the world. It works by saying, what's your story? And this guy says, well, geez, you know my, or this woman says, geez, my husband doesn't love me and my kids are out of the house and my life's falling apart. And you say, well, that's broken and messy. You know, I got a messy story too. But I got a place where I've got a better story. And they say, well, where's that better story? And you say, come and see. It's like the, it's like the apostles. They say, they say to people who are intrigued by Jesus, what's the final word they say? Come and see. So, I would, so what we're proposing, here's the thing, we're not denying the scriptures. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is say there's more than one, one way in which people come in contact with Jesus. They come in contact with him in the living voice of scripture. They come in contact with him in the sacraments. They come in contact with him in preaching. And they also come in contact with him via you. Here's what we're saying. You are a means of grace. That's what I'm saying. Because you embody the person of Christ. And, and, way, and I said this to Bruzek last week, and, and we both talked about whether or not it would be too abstract, but I'm going to say it anyway because he's not here. <laughs> I think the greatest problem in the church today is that people don't understand the reality of what it means to live in the body of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. We all say, I live in the body of Christ. Isn't this great? We're all part of the body of Christ. You, me, everyone. Isn't this wonderful? Let's hold hands to kumbaya. We're all part of the body of Christ. But to most Christians, the body of Christ is an abstract thought. It's some big, I can't see it. I mean, the invisible church. We're not like Rome who says we've got an invisible church. We're all part of the body of Christ. That's actually not what St. Paul means first and foremost. He means you reside in the physical flesh of Jesus. And I say this to the eighth graders every day. His flesh has become your flesh, and your flesh is his flesh. So when people touch you, they should actually be touching Jesus. And when you understand it that way, it's not that we're all friends because we're in the body of Christ. It's that I bear his flesh in my body. When you walk out the door, the life you live actually is a proclamation of the gospel. So that's different than saying just, know, just be armed with the scriptures. You do need to be armed with the scriptures because eventually they're going to ask you a question that you need to be able to answer. But first and foremost, that's not how, that's not how postmoderns operate. Modernists, traditionally, you're right, modernists, it would be all about give me the data and then show me the life, right? If I believe the data, then I may get involved in the life. Postmoderns say, man, Christians have been hypocrites for years. Show me the life and then give me the data. We're not denying the data. All I'm saying is that's not the first word said. The first word is Jesus. This is Catechism 101. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel. How does he do that? Through you. See what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. You know, I don't like the rational, irrational. Yeah, rational probably wasn't fair, but... Yes, right, right. And, and, and I don't think that's irrational. I, mean, mm -hmm. I would never say faith is irrational. So I, I, that's why I, I'm not really liking the rational and irrational business. Right. But faith, but faith isn't based primarily upon reason. There's some things you just can't figure out. Absolutely, but that doesn't, well. But that doesn't mean you're irrational. Right. That's Although one of the best words of wisdom, well, never mind, I won't, I won't say it. Because uh, it came from your husband. <laughs> okay, give it to me, Jen. I agree, well, first of all, I agree completely. I agree. It's not. There are many rational postmoderns, and there are many irrational modernists. Right, okay. However, okay. What, what coming to the faith is based upon for a, for, a modern, for a modernist is give me the data, which is a very rational process. Right. If it all adds up, I'll believe it. Yeah. For a postmodern, it's show me a life, which doesn't primarily mean that they get it completely. As I, I, mean, I said this to the, to the new members the first day, what we're not going to do in the new member class is crack your head open and pour a bunch of data in. Right. That's, that's the problem with, you know, 60 years ago, just reading the catechism to people may have worked. That's a, that's a bunch of good data. Yeah. 
That doesn't mean it's wrong. What it means is people don't, people don't embrace the church because you've poured that in their head. Right. They embrace the church because you see people embody Christ, and then they say, give me all the data, right. which then we do. Then we open up your head and pour all the data in. Right. But even when you have all that data, there's still a... There's still... Exactly. Exactly. Completely. Okay. Completely. So, Yeah, that's not completely fair. That's just, those are very broad strokes. Okay, okay. There's this book by the guy who educated the Christ in Canterbury. Josh McDowell, or what's his name? Lee Strobel. And it's kind of a combo, interestingly. Really? He was an agnostic, I think, or an atheist. He started to interview all these leaders, leading authorities on Christianity around the world. Like, he went to Cambridge and all this. Really? And it was more just his wife was a Christian, but she was not. Uh huh. Right. Right. Well, especially for you who are Christians, it, it certainly is both. There's certain things that you've had to, to kind of reason through and I figure out. Yeah, and there's some things you just can't understand. I mean, the liturgy, the liturgy, this is why, like, that, take, I mean, right there, that's a prime example of how the church is, how even the gospel is wholly irrational. I, I mean, the child doesn't know, doesn't know all the facts, but I firmly believe that because of baptism, that child actually believes it. I mean, they actually, they actually believe what's been said. So there, is a, so there is a distinction between just being, but I take your point. It is very true. At the end of the day, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Right. Right. But the primary thing today is the embodiment. Yeah. I love that story. There was the two sound men. Yeah, right. In the, um, they had been at a couple of the things. Yeah. Um, but their first thing was the service where we all gathered yeah. to try to decide did we want to, this is going to be our new home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, right. There, the, I mean, that's actually a great story. When we were over there and we had the Eucharist, you may remember this about, it was a, over a year ago. It was Lent 1 a year ago. Um, you know, all these, we had a number of kind of Wheaton College or uh, Wheaton Bible Church folks show up for that. And especially their two soundboard guys. One guy who I had met beforehand because we went over to plan the service. They're, the one thing they, get, they do right, out of many things, but one thing they do right is, boy, they plan, plan, plan. I love that. It's very type A over there. Um, <laughs> Like they said it at, you know, I think the service was at 6. They said at 5.55 we'll expect you to be in the back and we'll have the mics going. I'm like, this is great. You know, we don't even know. Well, I mean, you don't know if you're going to show up on a Sunday morning if the lights are going to be on. But there, you know, it's all teed up. So we get there, and these are young guys. I mean, that guy, the soundboard guy could not have been older than 35. And he said after the service, and we went all out, procession, chausables, vestments. We had the Eucharist. We did everything. And he said... Um, he said, I couldn't keep my eyes off the Eucharist. I just, it was like he was drawn to it. And, that, and, there, and this gets back to the, the, the question from Gigi. You're drawn to the person of Christ. If you actually believe that's Jesus, you're drawn to that. And he was so caught up in the liturgy. I mean, he just didn't know. It was, it was like, um, you know, it's like the story we often give to the new members where, Years and years ago, fourth century, some, a guy sent some, some folks out from his, uh, some royal folks out to go visit another cathedral to see what people were doing. And they walked in, and the, and the kind of the, co- the comment at the end of the, the story was they said, 
We walked out of the liturgy, and we didn't know if we were in heaven or on earth. We didn't know if we were in heaven or on earth. So these folks saw it, and then they, then they stayed also for the, uh, for, the, for the day when we put out the plans. And the same thing, they said, can we get a copy of that? We'd love to see that. We've never, they were drawn to it because it speaks, it delivers Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Great, I'm going to write, that's a sermon illustration. <laughs> Nutrients, ba- no, I agree. I, <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, right. Right. And it's, it's very strange because I think, and this is why it's so good to have, I mean, this is, this is actually a good mix of people. Um, some of you are, are you know, some of you are very much from the demographic that's just modern, you know, and some of you are very much from the demographic that's postmodern. But what's striking to me is, out of out of, for instance, a class of 32 people that were received as new members, I bet 80% of those are under the age of 35. And here's the here's the overwhelming comment. This is what they always say. When I call them, and I often, one woman said to me, this was great, you'll like this. She said, she said uh, geez, well, I'm not really looking for a church, to which I said, we're not looking for members. And she said, good, I want to come check your place out. <laughs> and so she did, and she ended up joining the church. But the overwhelming comment by people is, well, our life is chaotic. In fact, one woman said to me yesterday, we go to harvest something. She said, it's a convenient church. Meaning they just give you kind of the bare minimum. We play at the lowest common denominator. And she realizes in her own life that there's something greater than that. But people overwhelmingly said, you have the liturgy. It's bigger than us. It's, we want to be under someone's care, which is very much a postmodern thought. The fact that there's the ministry and there are parishioners and one person is given to be obedient to another, and even within the ministry there's obedience, that's, that's very much outside of yourself. To entrust yourself, to come to confession, is very postmodern. Because what you're saying is, it's not about me. And, and you know, the people that are coming to the church now are in their 30s and, you know, mid-30s and 40s and 20s, and they say, this is what we want. This is what we want. So you should take all of this not as, you know, we're trying to get rid of the liturgy. That's not it. The liturgy is postmodern. What we're trying to do is, we've got a unique opportunity to really hit on a gold mine. People are really searching for something, and the church has, has, the church has the remedy. What they want is something beyond themselves, and we've got it. So why not cash in on that? Don, I'll go to you because you were waiting patiently. I just wanted to say that the truth is military Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. 
And that's why when, when we go see people, it really is like bringing the church to them. One guy, one guy said, where were we? I took the vicar to see someone just this week. Um, oh, it was a friend of a parishioner who was a Mormon. And we were going to go do the commendation of the dying. And he said, this is what tipped me off. This is why I knew we could do the commendation of the dying. He said, when you walked in, I knew Jesus was in the room. Yep. Is that right? Trinity where? Oh, yeah. West Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we only get one, sh- you know, we get two shots at him a month. We see him once with the Eucharist and once for prayer. So it is, it is tough. Especially tough when you've got 20 or 30 people who are like that. Uh, in fact, we've go, now gone, to, to make your point, we've now gone over at Windscape. We gather everyone together and have one Eucharist for all the St. John folks. Why should you go to everyone's room? When you're going to, one, it cuts down on time, and two, it really is a sense of community. Eifert, Eifert was a good guy. He used to, he's the one that started that. In fact, they said to me, Pastor Eifert used to do this over at Windscape. His name is not forgotten. Yes. It's a very modern way of working. Okay. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you. I see my mother's generation yeah. as kind of a feeling generation and going with what makes you feel good and doing what feels right and they want to feel the spirit. Okay? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I never felt it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I didn't want to fake it, but I did fake it because I never felt it, so I faked it. And anyway, what ended up happening is I just gave the gig up and said, it's not real. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and then it took me a long time to get into, because by this church, and right. Right. It's a gift to you. It's not something that you conjure up. And I right. know I've gone over this because I'm beating a dead horse. But what I'm, I guess my point is, is that when this guy starts talking about, and I know he does not mean to. Mm-hmm. I know he's not trying to say, let's go back to the other way. But even a hint of it frightens me. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up with that from that 70s era all around me. Like, let's feel the joy. Right. Because really the fact of the matter is, in the Christian life for me, I don't always feel the joy. That's right. And and a matter of fact is sometimes it's not really the best option to choose to live for myself. Welcome to the ministry. <laughs> I completely get it. This this book it I like it. I'm not offended by it like a dead woman. But with this book, um he makes me nervous. All right, well here's the thing. First first and foremost, let me say one thing. It's not about emotion. I said that at the very beginning. I so here's the thing. Give the guy, just give the guy, a sh- it's chapter two. Give the guy a shot. We got plenty of time. There are like 19 chapters here. Just, okay, don't be nervous. I heard Pastor talking about it last I know. I know. I know. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen, listen, very, this is very care. Listen, very careful. This is like when I had a joy grouper sit down in my office. This is how you know perception is not reality. I had a joy grouper sit down in my office. Actually, th- and this is one who has been so kind to me. So when he comes in, I, actually, I listen. I mean, it's very important. And he said, um, I want to talk to you about your sermon last Sunday. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is not good. This is not good. <laughs> the sermon for Holy Cross Day. He said, you told us. And I would actually be anxious, and this is why I love you, because I'd be anxious to know if you heard the same thing. Yes, you. <laughs> Couldn't be. Then who? Um, yes, I've seen. What's that, what's that group called? The Elephant Show? I went to it live with my sister when she was five, and I was nine. Anyways, 
back on track. She, he said to me, in your sermon on Sunday, you said to us that we should be worshiping the Virgin Mary. I said, I said that? He said, yes, you told us, worship the Virgin Mary. So I got my sermon off the shelf and said to him, here were my exact words. Lutherans are most afraid of three things. The Virgin Mary, good works, and the crucifix. And about the Virgin Mary, I said, she was favored just a bit too much, and that rubs us the wrong way. We're all equals, are we not? He said, well, see, there you said it. We're supposed to worship the Virgin Mary. I said, I said perception is not reality. Because what I said, what reality was, she was favored too much, and that rubs us the wrong way. You think I said, worship the Virgin Mary. Okay? Now, perception is, this guy is all about emotion, and we're going to have guitars in the church. Reality is, he's not, I promise you. I promise you. I know this guy. I've actually, I mean, I, I've met this guy. He's not driven by emotion. Postmodernism is not driven by emotion, and we're not going to have guitars. So bear with it. You got 19. I know you're just saying. I, it makes me nervous, too, but, you know, fear is self-regarding, and self-regarding is a sin, so don't fear. Don't be self-regarding. It'll all be okay. Jen Cole. Close it all up. It means by definition, it means by definition, means by definition the church has always, the church, the church has always had to operate in the times it's been given to operate. This is why the gospel is always specific. What's the time in which you live? The church today is very postmodern, or should be very postmodern. The church 100 years ago wouldn't have survived if it was postmodern. Okay? The gospel is always, so we, we need to say specifically at this time. And that means in 50 years, you know, when I'm in the joy group, I may say, it's all about postmodernism. And some young vicar is going to say, no, it's not. It's post-postmodern. <laughs> and I'm going to be angry, and I'm going to go in his office and say, I heard you say you should worship the Virgin Mary. And he's going to say, Pastor, I didn't say that. I'm going to say, yes, you did. I heard it. Because I'm a postmodern, and that's what... No, I'm kidding. So here's the thing. It's specific. What's the time today? Who had their hand up back there? Holly Bourne. As a postmodern, I just want to say, I don't think that it's driven by emotion. For me, it's more like, I'm not saying that Lutherans are most afraid of emotion. I'm saying that Lutherans are Here's, the way, here's why I love Jesus. I love Jesus because he relates, to, he relates to his people the same way I relate to my wife. Okay, Case in point. This is perfect. She says to me, I say something and she says, what did you mean by that? <laughs> to which I say, I mean exactly what I said. I mean, it's, and, here's, and here's the thing. To say what you mean and mean what you said is utterly incarnational. It's all there. That's all it is. It is what it is. If you say, what did you, like, you know, I said, hey, thanks for cleaning the house. And she said, what did you mean by that? <laughs> I meant exactly what I said by that. Thank you for cleaning the house. Okay? Jesus is the same way. When he says, this is how I work, that's how he works. Don't ask why. And if you do, at least don't say, is there something behind that, Jesus? Like, when you said, this is my body and blood, do you really mean that's your body and blood? Holly, help us out here. Uh, no, just on Holly's <laughs> comment. I think postmodernism is like the freedom to not be bound by the emotion. Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about the classics, it's not about science and facts. Right. It's about what it says it is. You know, I mean, we experienced this in Russia where they never believe in science. Right. And people will say body and blood, they say, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Exactly. We've passed the enlightenment so far, you know, we're so far removed now that we can start to begin to disregard it right. in a way that frees us to believe in things that are not solvable right. or mysterious. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, 
there are more young people that say, yes. Yeah, I mean, there are people coming from Wheaton College who have never grown up with sacramental realities, and they say, Jesus says it's his body and blood. I suppose it's his body and blood. Why wouldn't you take him at his word? It's, it's, a, it's a modernist who says, now that can't be. This is Luther's great line when he says, when he says to Zwingli, who says, is, does, is, does is really mean is? Meaning this is my body. Does it re maybe it means signifies. And Luther says, is means is, and always will mean is. It is. So yes, right. <laughs> Unless you're the President of the United States. That's going on the internet. Yes, keep going. <laughs> Become a Lutheran. Yes. And, um, and, and, and that's the whole thing is that I always say it is his body, it is his blood. I said, read the Bible. He's not saying it's transforming. He's not saying it, it represents. I said, you know, I go, somebody in the hierarchy of your church 300 years ago right. decided that this was going to happen. I said, who was he? He was just a human. He was as, as you know, as failing as you and I as a, as a human being. Right. And yet what he said Everybody decided it was, yep, that's right, because it can be tangible and we can right. think it that way. And, and so for, for me, almost a little bit of, like, Missouri Synod is almost a little bit postmodern. I mean, yeah. even if you think you're the utmost modern, you know, even if you're Bruzic and you think you've been modern this whole time, <laughs> you've, you've had a little bit irrational. Right. I mean, if you want to call it that. Well, yeah, I mean, actually your point about, about – Roman Catholicism and transubstantiation, that's actually, that's brilliant insight because when they finally defined what happened at the altar, when, when Rome finally said it's transformed in the body and blood and defined it philosophically, yeah, right. that was during the time of the Enlightenment. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's why their definition came about. We need a rational explanation. So we're going to say there are substance and accidents. And when the Lord speaks, the substance has changed, but the accidents remain. They gave this long philosophical definition to which Luther says, he says it is, so it is. Right. It's his body and it's his blood, and we're not going to describe how it happens. Right. So the whole problem with, with, with some of Rome's teaching is not that they're wrong, but they tried to describe it, oh, yeah. which is utterly modern. Right, absolutely. But, but don't you think it's utterly postmodern yes. of Luther? Oh, completely. Okay. I feel better now. <laughs> don't fear postmodernism. Well, because I wouldn't call Luther irrational. So now I yes, right. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right? I don't remember either. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that I don't remember or that no, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Yeah, I Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what Luther tried to say all along. Well, you know, Everybody yeah. Right. I think you're a little too sophisticated for N.T. Wright. Because, and no, real honestly, remember who he's writing to. I mean, you've been a Lutheran, what, your whole life? You've read the Book of Concord. You've read the small catechism. You, you know, someday you'll be teaching this class. So, you're a little too sophisticated. He's writing to people who have no concept of that, but he's saying the same thing simply. That's why it's called simply Christian. Okay? He's trying to be very simple. So you may say it's a conscience and the, and the catechism says these three things. You may be right, but what he's saying is somewhere deep inside of you, you know there's something else out there. Right? And the, and the goal is to bring those things into communion with each other. To bring those Because there are a lot of non-Christians who are spiritual. And he makes the point of go, down any, go to any bookstore and look in spirituality and see what you find. It could be anything from witchcraft to magic to this book. Okay? So the point is to bring those things. How can we bring spirituality into service of the gospel in the church? And, and actually, this may be a, a good lead-in. I, I think the way you do that, spirituality, when you actually boil it down, is all about a rhythm 
and a routine. He even used the example of a pilgrimage. And I found this fascinating because my, my father-in-law just took, he did like a four-week pilgrimage in Spain from, and I know some of you Lutherans are going to get upset by this, but I think it's kind of cool. He did a four-week pilgrimage from the top of, from the bottom of France all the way over to the coast in Spain to um, Santiago de Compostela, which is where St. James, the son of Zebedee, you know, James and John, the son of Zebedee, where James is buried. And this, along with the pilgrimage to Rome and to Jerusalem, this is the third oldest pilgrimage ever. And they walked, it was something like four or 500 miles they walked. And you stay at hostels at night. I mean, this is, this is not my idea of fun, okay? The walking bit would be great, and getting there would be great. Staying at hostels, not so great, okay? Yes, well, as, as your senior pastor always says, my idea of roughing it is at Holiday Inn with no minibar, okay? Think about that for a minute. So all the way over to the coast, they get there, but along the way, you have 400 miles to talk with people, and he said it was fascinating. They were the only Lutherans, one, and along the way they found many nice people, and they'd say, why are you taking the pilgrimage? Some would say, I'm a devout Catholic. Some would say, I'm dipping into religion a little bit. Some said, my marriage is screwed up and I want a time to think. Some said, I lost my job. Some said, I just like being outside and walking. Now, now here's the thing. That's a quest for spirituality. There's something inside of those people. It's not just that they like to be walking. You don't go on a pilgrimage for 400 miles and get stamps with crucifixes along the way because you like walking. You can walk 400 miles any place. Watch Forrest Gump. I know you do. Okay? You can just keep walking. But there's something inside that bubbles up. This is spirituality. These are the springs of spirituality. And they do this whole thing, and you get to the very end, and you walk inside the church, and what's the first thing they do for these people? They have a mass. And those of you who don't like incense, don't ever take the pilgrimage, because they have the biggest incense boat, thurible, in the world. This thing is, pro I think they said it's 400 pounds. And they pull it back, three priests, and they let it go, and it swings in the transept of the church. I mean, if you got hit by this, it'd kill you. I'm not joking. And, and the, the original intent was the people smelled so bad from the pilgrimage, you had, duh. Well, now people stay at hostels, and they can take showers. So they have this huge pilgrimage. But here's what happens. You get, you get yeah, you get, well, Donna. Smells worse. You get 5,000 pilgrims in a cathedral, and the very first thing they do when they get there is they have the mass, and everyone sings, and everyone prays, and everyone kneels, and everyone looks at the bones because it's all about spirituality for them. Now, think about that. If, you had, if we had those 10,000 people take a pilgrimage to the Billy Graham Center, okay, and they stopped in here at the very end for the Eucharist, we'd have them forever. It's just a matter of how do you get those people in the door. Because they want it. Yeah, they want it. So how do you get them in? So, go ahead. Uh, Bruzek when he dies. Or you, big thumb under the altar. It'd be kind of fun. Come see the bones of Carol Holter. You wouldn't get anybody? Look at, to that end, how you get people in. Look at this sheet. And I did pass this out. Believe me, we're not going to look at everything. I'm going to show you one point on here. But since I had made... 400 copies and had 200 in my office, I thought I'd save the church some money. I am convinced that N.T. Wright's book mirrors the adult catechumenate. And I didn't realize this till last week when I read the first chapter again. I think it mirrors it to a T. Okay? Remember the three sections of his book. First section is Echoes of a Voice. The second section is Jesus is the Voice. And the third section is how do you practice or live within the voice? The four parts of the ancient catechumenate are inquiry, you walk off the street. This is like the third point down. That's where we say, tell us your story, which is really, how did you hear the echo of a voice? What brought you here? Was it you had a bad marriage? Was it, you know, you wanted justice? What was it? Was it you want community? Who knows? Tell us your story. That's N.T. Wright, echoes of a voice. Then we say, Wow, that was messy. Did you know that Jesus has a story? Which is where N.T. Wright says, all those echoes of a voice are really just Jesus. We say, all those echoes of a voice in your nasty stories are really just ready to be transformed by Jesus' story. The third part, then, 
is where we tell you Jesus wants to trade stories, meaning Jesus is the fulfillment of your echo, and by the way, he wants you to live in it. And finally, the fourth part is, now that you've traded, here's what your life should look like. This is practicing what N.T. Wright will get to in the third and final section. Here's the great thing. This book is the catechumenate in 140 pages. And that's brilliant, which means if this appeals to postmoderns, so will this. This is utterly postmodern because first and foremost, it's about community. This is utterly postmodern because first and foremost, it's about being brought into a story, being brought into an echo of a voice, being brought into a living voice who is Jesus. Okay? That was just, just so you don't think the pastors have trashed the new member class and it's never going to be the same again and they don't know what they're doing. We may not, but then N.T. Wright doesn't either. So we're okay. Yeah. When I preached the sermon, I said we should worship Mary. That one? <laughs> that was the day. The very beginning of the next new member class. We have 40 people enrolled in the catechumenate. Those are not their kids. Their kids are probably another, well, there are 16 of them on Saturday. So almost 60 people altogether who will be coming in as new members. And we've assigned them to sponsors. Um, it's the very start. It'll be five months. Five months, six months, yeah. yeah. The old program was about 18 weeks. This one is just a bit longer. But, you know, in the early church, they did it for three years. Think about joining the church. It takes you three years. We want to make sure we know everything about you. Because for some of you, if you would have been here three years, you may not be members right now. <laughs> you can dupe us in 18 weeks. You can't dupe us in three years. Yes. Yeah, right. So, um, like Tom Cruise and whatever his church is, is that part of the group of seeking spirituality, you think? Or is oh, there yeah. something else that's going on? Or is this um, more, of a, um, more, more seeking going on now? Yeah, no, I, I think the question is are all kind of these non Christian groups or sects or whatever, are they all kind of echoes of a voice or seeking echoes? And is it more so now than it was before? I would say yes to both of those. Um, this is why the church has such a great opportunity because if you just got those, I mean, the problem is if you just got those people into the Christian church and got them into the liturgy, you'd finally be giving them good stuff. They're all searching for this. It's just who's going to get after them and get them in. Okay? Audrey. Thank you very much. No one else here wants to be here, but you do, and that's great. All right. How many of you read the section on spirituality? Don't raise your hand. Oh, okay. That was the second chapter. Second, first chapter was on justice. Yeah, go ahead. Well, maybe we did. I mean, I just started talking, and I didn't stop. Yes, you can say what it is. Yep. Right. Right. Very good point. Um, and this, I think, this here's here's where I think the disconnected is, and it was for me too. The I mean, I've read this now probably four times. Okay. And I, and I probably had some of the same reactions the first time I read it. Maybe not as intense, but some of the same reactions. I mean, I said, oh, that's not right. Or I can't believe he chose spirituality to talk about. He could have even labeled it something else. But more and more, if you, this gets all the way back to the very beginning, to Gigi's point about the scriptures. If you believe that the scriptures are the living voice of Jesus, if you believe that what we should give people is the living voice of Jesus, this is what the church has always said, it's the viva vox, right? The living voice. There is a sense in which you can kill that living voice. You can kill the living voice. And that can happen theologically. You give them bad stuff. 
or it can happen experientially. Now think about, think about this. If you came into church and uh, the pastor stood up and was monotone the whole service, and I've been to places like this. In fact, a part of me used to think that was right. But you go to a church where the pastor is completely monotone and you sing all 18 stanzas to a hymn and it drones on. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, I mean, at that point, here's the thing. Great hymn. I'd love to sing all 18 stanzas, but at that point, I'd be shoving bamboo shoots up my fingernails. I would not be able to take it. Okay, now, for some of you, that may be what you love. For many people, it's not that that's not true and right. It's that it completely gets in the way of the living voice of Jesus. So there is something experiential. If you can think that experience can be redeemed for the gospel, there is something experiential. People need to come in, be given the goods, be enlivened by it, love it, and go out and say, I can't wait to come back next week, which is part of the reason why I only preach eight-minute sermons, because if I preach on and on, they said, when will he wrap up? They'd never come back to hear me preach. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm going to write all these down so when someone gives me a hard time, I can say, women's Bible study. Now here, and I'll also tell you this, the way, that, the way that the liturgy is designed, if this is invocation, the way that the liturgy is designed is there are high points, emotional points, points that are supposed to get you and wrap you up and catch you in something greater than yourself. It works like this. Invocation leads up to the Holy Gospel. This is why, um, this is why the Alleluia verse should be one of the loudest things you sing. That's what it's all about. And then the sermon is the connection to the next part of the service. And that has its high point at the verba, at the words of Jesus. And, and what's striking to me is, especially when it's chanted, and even when it's spoken, but especially when it's chanted, we've been, we've been going through, we've been actually watching the services on Tuesdays now to see what we can do better. When the verba is chanted, you can hear a pin drop. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's, I don't necessarily think it's because everyone likes it. I know they don't like it. Um, what's that? I like it. No, I think it's great. I don't think everyone likes it. But that doesn't matter. People are, for some reason, they are caught up in that moment and drawn to what's happening at the altar. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. You notice there's some variation. I know people were not real happy about all the chanting, so it doesn't happen all the time. But the point is, when it does happen, you could hear a pin drop in the sanctuary. Now, why is that? It seems more holy. Yes, exactly. And for most people, at least if they get what the church is all about, that is the moment of the service. The sermon is, I'm giving a paper down at Wheaton College on sacramental preaching in two weeks, and I, and I lead the, the end section by saying, for some of you, the sermon is the main thing, meaning you don't have the Eucharist. For us, the sermon is just the thing leading to the main thing. The main thing is the supper. So if you understand it this way, the gospel and the verba are the two high points, it is utterly emotional. And you should see people come to the altar. I mean, and that's not a bad thing to be emotional. I mean, I'm deep down. <laughs> what? <laughs> Very emotional. It's very funny. Abby said to me, since you become a pastor, you become more emotional. Which means to start, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't very emotional at all. But it's true. When you're, when you're caught up, see, now these women in the back are thinking, I can't believe she married that guy. <laughs> I can't either. I can't either. I thank God every day for it. But more and more, when you get caught up day in and day out in the sacramental mysteries, in Jesus putting himself into people and transforming them, that is, I mean, there's nothing in the world like that. What he does to people is remarkable, and that is, that's very emotional. And that doesn't happen unless you provide an environment where it can happen. So it doesn't mean you, you help the word of God. You just don't get in its way. Okay? Can we go to Jen? Jen can I come to you then? You're going to talk about my wife, weren't you, and how much she loves me. Go ahead. Page 24, okay.
see, this is, this is why you and I are different. <laughs> I read that and had a completely different read on it. Instantly I thought, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Because at that very moment, here's the thing, at that very moment, and he'll say this later on, at that very moment, heaven and earth come together and you're actually in two realities. So I had a whole different read. When he said, I'm speaking of the widely reported times which people have a sense of living for a while in multiple dimensions, I'm like, the Eucharist. It's not like you walk outside and say, oh, I had a spiritual experience. It's that you're at the altar and you actually are involved in another dimension, which has become one with your dimension. My dead grandfather's right there. Boom. Yeah. Yes, right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. 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 That's exactly right. And that gets back to the reality of the body of Christ. If you just understand it as some abstract thing, that's not what drives you. What drives me is you're at the altar and all the saints are there. That's what it's all about. Go ahead. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, when you're chanting, you're talking about chanting. Right. How maybe people are quiet because it's otherworldly. You don't do that. You don't chant your own people. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> A very strange musical. <laughs> well, here's the thing. This is, this is why, this is why, I mean, this is, this is, one of the greatest, this is one of the greatest moments of being a father. And believe me, I'm not, this is where I, maybe it's a pitfall, maybe I'm not a pietist, I don't know. But I'm not the kind of dad who, you know, every, every moment that I spend with Emma, I'm talking about the Bible. I mean, I'm talking, she says, can I have a sip of your beer? Can I have a drink? Let's watch Sports Center. That's the kind of stuff she says. And I love it. That's because that's living in reality, okay? If you begin with the altar, the rest of life is very Eucharistic, but you don't have to talk about it all the time, Okay? So, but Emma, on Monday, we go to McDonald's because she wants chicken nuggets and apple juice. And uh, then we go to Aldi and shop for mom. Take notes. One day a week, I go shopping. And usually we go to Ace because they have free coffee and Emma likes to ride around and look at fertilizer and stuff. She loves it. So, but we come home and Abby gets home and, you know, she said something about church, Abby did, and. I started to, I said, Emma, what do you know? And I started to sing parts of the liturgy. And I'd stop and she'd keep singing. Now, part of that is because last year, she was in church 72 times. <laughs> now, we have members that don't come 72 times. So that tells you something. If you're in contact with Jesus and his gifts, it changes you. Same thing with Audrey. I mean, Audrey and Emma, I, at Thursday morning Eucharist, we speak the verba. And I'm at the altar and I say, the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, and there's a pause there because you lean in and you speak at the host, and I hear Emma in the back, take, eat. <laughs> now here's the thing. That means she's got it. That means she's got it. Audrey's the same way. I mean, she can say the Lord's Prayer. She knows that kind of, she knows the liturgy. And I'll put a plug in. There's no reason these kids shouldn't come to the altar. No reason. So, thank you. <laughs> and we can talk about that at another time. But, you know, we have members that don't know what kids know. So, it's a different, it's a different world. I don't even know what we were talking about, because talking about Emma gets me all jacked up. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. You are in another world. Yeah. You have a nursery worker that's got to go. Let's say the Lord's Prayer, and we'll come back next week, okay? Yes, you did. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right.